Giants are never mentioned positively in the Bible, and I will leave it at that. <laughs> However, the Lord will lift you up on eagles' wings. So, go birds! Uh, it's a great time to be a uh, Phillies fan, all right, so this has been a, a wonderful week, and I'm sure it will end in disaster, as it always does, but for the moment, I'm enjoying the ride. As he mentioned, I grew up in Africa, and I know everyone's first thought when I say that is, why are you white? Um, well, it's called being a missionary. So when I was a kid, my, my dad was, was driving down uh, the, the road in Allentown near Dorney Park, and he saw a billboard from Africa Inland Mission. He was asking a lot of questions about his life. He had a young family. Uh, I was about four or five at the time. And I saw a billboard for Africa Inland Mission calling people to come be missionaries. And my dad saw that as a literal sign that he should move his family to the middle of nowhere, East Africa, as all of us would do, I'm sure. We'd all, we're all in the same place there. So my dad, remember, he comes to me, and he, he bends down and plays with my Legos, and kneels down and he says, Tucker, how would you feel about moving to Africa? And I said, I don't want to. And he said, doesn't matter. So he packs up my family, all right? And we move to the middle of nowhere. I'm talking middle of nowhere. You have to picture like the Lion King, all right? Elton John, circle of life, pan to the left. There's where I grew up, okay? With huts and spears and half-naked people and hyenas biting people's faces off. Not kidding. True story. We have a friend who's just missing this part, okay? It was a wild time growing up. And here's the thing. When I was in Africa, I learned about something very real that we all experience in life, something called fear. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. We all have rational fears. We all have irrational fears. Some of us, I don't know what your irrational fear is. Maybe you're afraid. I have a friend who's afraid of like wet rags on the floor. It just freaks them out for some reason. Weird fear to have, okay? My weird fear is the fear of spiders. Is there anyone man enough to admit that they are not cool with spiders? Cool. You, me, yes. We can be friends, all right? The rest of you are liars because spiders are disgusting creatures. But here's where my fear of spiders comes from. Let me tell you the story real quick. So in Africa, there is a rule. If you ever visit East Africa, this, I'm going to give you just a little PSA. This is a good rule to follow. When you go to bed at night, all right, you tuck in your mosquito netting, you close your eyes, and you do not open your eyes until it is daylight. And here's the reason why. If you open your eyes before it's daylight, you will soon realize there are things living in your room with you that you did not know were there previously, and you did not want to know were there previously. So it's early on in my Africa experience, all right? We're in the middle of nowhere. I get into my bed. I tuck in my mosquito netting. It's a beautiful beautiful, serene Tanzanian night, and I break the rule. I open my eyes, and I see there's this just patch of moonlight being cast across the wall, when all of a sudden, I see this monstrosity, the size of my face, sprint through that patch of moonlight, all right? This massive huntsman spider that is literally larger than my hand, because I got little tiny hands, all right? This massive spider runs across the wall. Here's how big it was. I could hear it moving, all right? When a spider is big enough for you to hear it walking and clicking its little things, you know it's too big. So I scream. I rip off my mosquito neck. I run to my mom and dad's room like, Mom, Dad, there's a monster in my room. And my dad's like, there's no monster in your room. And he goes into my room. He comes back. And he's like, honey, get the machete. And he grabs a machete. And he runs into my room and starts hacking this thing to bits, all right? I'm looking around the corner, peeking at it, and I just see its legs twitching, saying, my brothers and sisters will get you. Like, I know that vengeance is coming for me. And it was that day that I learned to be afraid of spiders in Africa. Here's the problem, though, all right? 
fear is interesting in that most fear is based in a little bit of truth and a whole lot of lies. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Usually there's some little essence of truth in most of our fears, but it's usually based in a lot of lies. So here's how this comes into play is that not too long ago, all right, I go down into my basement where all spiders live, and I have my laundry basket where I'm going to do my laundry because I love my wife and I want her to love me. So I get down there, and there is just this disgusting daddy long leg just sitting right there, right in front of the laundry machine. Now, at that moment, I have a choice to either allow my little bit of truth and fear in that, you know, spiders are disgusting, horrible creatures, or I can live in the real truth. The truth that that spider can't really hurt me. So what do I do? I take my laundry basket, I squish stupid spider, and I go and do my laundry, and my wife still loves me. And I say that to say this, is that if we allow fear to control us and keep us from the things we're supposed to do, we're living in a lie rather than living in truth. And what did Jesus teach us? He taught us to live in the truth. The truth will set you what? Free. It will set you free. And so today I want to share some of my story, as you've already heard part of it. But I want to focus in on this idea of how do we live in truth rather than in lies? How do we live in faith rather than in fear? Because I'll tell you something. There are too many people, men, women, teenagers, whoever, that operate out of a place of fear rather than faith. And God is looking at us as men and saying, are you going to be a man who walks in faith rather than in fear. You see, we all deal with fear, and I would say for most of us, especially as men, the number one fear that we deal with is the fear of failure. The fear of failure. All of us have experienced this from the days that we were young and in elementary school, and we didn't get picked for like the kickball team, and we were like, oh no, I'm going to miss the ball, and I'm going to look like an idiot, all the way up to, I don't know, however old some of us are in this room, all right? And we make choices based out of what if I fail instead of what if God shows up? And most of us live in that fear. We make choices in that fear. It's why we didn't try out for the soccer team in high school. It's why we didn't ask out that girl. It's why we didn't make this business decision. It's why we didn't choose X, Y, or Z. Some of us, our entire career paths are based on a decision we made in fear rather than in faith. And it has led to the trajectory of our current lives. Now, here's the great thing about the Lord, is that he understands our weakness. He understands these difficulties that we struggle with. He understands our, our weakness and our frailty, and he gives us examples to learn from. I don't know if you guys know this, but in the Bible, most of the people that you read about dealt with the same things that you and I deal with. They dealt with fear. They dealt with that anxiety. They dealt with the weight of responsibility. There's a story in here, in the book of Jeremiah. I don't know how often you guys have read the book of Jeremiah. It's a great book, but it has a crazy beginning. Jeremiah is just a normal guy. He's about 17 years old, living his life, when God appears to him and says, Jeremiah, I have called you to be a prophet to the nations. Which, I don't know if you guys realize this, but being a prophet back then was basically like you walk into the office of the king and you say, hey, you're ruining the country. You need to do something about this. You are leading people astray. Some of you guys are like, I'd like to be a prophet right now. Just walk right on down to the White House and let Biden know what's up, all right? It's a terrible idea back then because back then, guess what? The king, if you start talking against him, what's he going to do? <laughs> He's going to cut your head off, okay? So God calls a 17-year-old kid and says, I want you to be a prophet to the king, prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah responds in much the same way that most of us would, where he says, I don't know how to talk, God. I'm only a child. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to speak. I'm going to fail if you put me in charge of this mission. 
Moses, same thing, all right? Picture Charlton Heston in your head with a really fake wig and beard, okay? Moses, he is called by God at the burning bush, all right? God says, you are going to go lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. I don't know how to speak. Send somebody else, anybody else. I don't want to go. And God says, no, I have chosen you. You see, these men operated from a place of fear. They operate from a place of fear of failure. And all of us have experienced this at some point or another. You see, when we operate from a fear of failure, we're operating and living in a lie. And right now, it's important that you hear this. I'm going to name the lie for you, and I'm going to say it, and you're going to realize, oh, I've believed that. Ready? Here's the lie we live in. When we live in the fear of failure, we live in the lie that our value is defined by our success. Let me say it again. When we live in the fear of failure, we live in the lie that our value is defined by our success. And right now, you know, that's how I live my life, man. And do you know why we live our lives like that? Because everything in this world is telling you that that lie is true. Everything. Starting from when you're young and you're in school, right? You are more valuable if you have these grades on your report card. You are more valuable if you are on the varsity basketball team. You are more valuable if you are homecoming king. You are more valuable if you get into this college. You are more valuable if you are making this salary. You are more valuable if you are in this circle of people. You are more valuable in the eyes of the world based on how successful you are. Right? We look at someone like Lionel Messi, right? All right? The dude's making a boatload of money, most famous man in the world. And we say, he has more value than the man down the street from me that's struggling to pay his mortgage. Why? Because he's more successful. But can I tell you something? That's a lie. It's not true. It's not how God designed the world. It's not how God looks at you and looks at me. And here's the thing. Anyone that you know in life that you would qualify as successful has failed. Repeatedly. I don't need to go through the whole list. We all know the stories, the, you know, the, the, the legends of individuals who failed a million times before they succeeded. You all know those stories. But I want you to think for a moment, how have I allowed the lie that my value is defined by my success to affect my life? To affect my decisions. When I was, uh, was, well, I guess I'm still kind of young, getting older. But when I was younger, all right, I remember uh, I went into uh, my first art class. I was in high school. It was my ninth grade year. And I had always loved to draw. I'd always loved to create. I'd always loved to paint and things like that. So I was really excited for my first art class. And I go in, and my art teacher, he says to me, Tucker, uh, into our restaurant class, I want you to go home. You're going to draw a portrait of someone. Bring it in just so okay, I, can get a, I can get a sense of where you are artistically in your you know, journey here, okay? And I was like, all right, so I go home. I'm doing my drawing, getting my shading in real good. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. And I bring it into him, and I hand it to my art teacher. And he says to me, Tucker, this is the worst piece of crap I've ever seen in my life. Never draw in my class again. Then ripped it up and started beating it with a stick, all right? This dude was off his rocker. He was like a stereotypical insane artist. So that was my very first art class. And I remember that feeling of epic failure that I had just fallen on my face in front of all my peers who I'd always talked about how good I was at art and all this stuff. And I was horribly embarrassed and I felt so small and devalued. But then I started to think about maybe I can just get better. 
So what I started to do was, because he told me never to draw in his class again, is I would sneak into the art room, and I would start working on other people's projects when they weren't there. And then those people started winning awards at art competitions. And then finally the truth came out, and my teacher was like, maybe you should try drawing. And I was like, maybe, you think, you jerk, all right? And so I started to, like, work really, really hard at my art, but I kept failing repeatedly. I remember I was in our church, and we had seen someone at a conference do one of these live painting dealios that I'll show you guys in a little bit and do for you. But I remember seeing that and be like, oh, man, that'd be so cool if we did that at our church. It'd be so cool if we did that at our youth group. And so I had this whole plan. I planned this whole presentation, this whole live art piece, and I get up, and I do it, and it goes horribly, horribly wrong. I'm talking the painting was finished, and it didn't look like anything. Like, it was bad. I had this whole plan where I had, like, painter's tape hidden on the canvas that when I, like, took it off, it would reveal the cross and be this really cool, powerful moment. The only problem was the paint dried too hard, and I literally couldn't get the paint off, so the cross never showed up. The gospel just fell completely flat, apparently. I couldn't finish. It was terrible. It was a complete disaster. And I fell on my face again, and I was like, oh, I need to quit or something. But then I learned something really, really powerful. And here's the truth I want you to hear. Your value is not defined by your success. Your value is defined by your Savior. And here's what I mean by that. Is that all of us are going to fail in life. And if we live our lives valuing ourselves and the people around us by how successful or unsuccessful they are, we will live a defeated life and a fearful life. Because our value is not defined by our success. Let me illustrate it another way. I want to tell you a story real quick about a pocket watch that my grandfather had. My grandfather has this pocket watch that is super broken, all right? The glass is cracked. It's not made of gold. It's pretty much useless and worthless, all right? But if I, if I come to you, Dave, I'm going to pick you randomly, all right? If I come to you, Dave, and I offer you this worthless, broken, you know, pocket watch, how much money are you going to give me for it? Nothing. All right, so no dollars. No darn. Okay, so I was really hoping I was going to make a dollar off this. All right, so he's not going to offer me nothing for this watch, but let me tell you the story of this watch real quick, because there's a good story behind this. So this watch was given to my grandfather, who was a pastor, by a pastor friend of his who uh, was a minister in the South uh, through um, the mid-1900s and what have you, especially during uh, the 1950s and 60s. So during this time, uh, my grandfather's friend would always carry on this pocket watch in his uh, pocket, obviously. And it reminded him of when he needed to be at meetings, appointments, different things that he had to go to because you didn't have, you know, your Google Calendar back then and your reminders on your phone. So uh, he would carry this watch around with him, and he began to start to get involved in the civil rights movement. He started to speak at different marches, attend different things, speak at different rallies, because he believed fundamentally in his heart that racism was wrong, that segregation was wrong. And so he carried around this pocket watch reminding him when he needed to be at which rally, where he needed to be when, so on and so forth. Well, he started to gain more and more prominence as a speaker, as a, a man that could really give power to truth and make truth accessible to people all across America. And so finally, there's a day that there's this massive march on Washington being planned, and they ask this pastor friend of my grandfather's, hey, would you be willing to speak at this? And he thinks about it, and he considers it, and he says, of course, this is going to be a great opportunity. I would love to speak at this rally, this march on Washington. Well, it's the night before, and he's sitting in his hotel room, and he's finished up his meetings for the day, and he's starting to work through his speech that he's been preparing for months now. And he's reading through, he's editing, he's planning, and he looks at his pocket watch, and he considers for a moment, he thinks about it, and he starts to think about how the time of segregation is ending. 
it's coming to a close. It has to end. He's looking at that stopwatch or that pocket watch, and he jots off on a, on a notepad to the side. He writes down a few words. He writes down these words, I have a dream. Looking at that pocket watch. And he kind of just puts it to the side, and he, he kind of stows it away for later. And finally, the, the morning of the march uh, begins. They have all, everything set up. People are flooding in Washington, D.C. And finally, after all the bands and speakers, it's my grandfather's friend's turn to speak. And he gets up and begins to share when all of a sudden a woman behind him yells out, Dr. King, tell him about the dream. And he pauses for a moment. And he feels that pocket watch in his pocket. And he thinks about how a time is coming where a man will be judged not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And it's at that moment that Martin Luther King Jr. launches into one of the greatest speeches ever given on American soil, the I Have a Dream speech, all the while that watch ticking away in his pocket. Now, Dave, I come back to you. How much is the watch worth? Invaluable. It's priceless. Here's the thing, though. Nothing changed about the watch. It didn't, it didn't suddenly become made of gold. It, it wasn't like the glass was suddenly fixed. It wasn't like it was created out of diamonds or anything like that. What changed is that now you understood who it belonged to. You understood the story of the watch. Full disclosure, that whole story is fake. I don't have that watch. I'm not a millionaire. I tell you that as an illustration. You guys are like, he's a liar. And so, okay, whatever. So... But I tell you that for a reason. You see, we define our value by how well we work, how beautiful we are. Are we made of gold or diamonds? Are we fancy? Blah, 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 blah. That's not how God defines our value, though. That's not how God has defined your value. What does it say in Scripture? Scripture says that you are made in the image of God, meaning whether or not you follow God, believe in God, whether you are a faithful follower of God, whether you're the worst follower of God ever in the history of the planet, you are made in the image of God. You were created in God's image. Therefore, you have value that does not change. You don't suddenly lose your status as an image bearer, one who belongs to God, simply because you choose not to follow him. No, no, no. He says, you were made in my image, and I created you. You see, that truth started to radically transform how I lived my life, because no longer did it matter if I succeeded or failed, because guess what? My value wasn't going up and down on the eye, based on the eyes of other people. My value was set based in the eyes of God. And so I remember I did that first live painting, totally failed, epic failure. So I was like, let's do another one because that's the right thing to do, right? And so I remember we, we took this massive half sheet of plywood. I went to uh, Ocean City, New Jersey. I set up on the boardwalk and I did another painting and I just started preaching the gospel to people at 16 years old, telling people about a God that loved them, had a plan for their life, that they were made in the image of God, that they were made to have relationship with God. And I finished that painting and that painting also looked terrible, okay? Didn't look like much of anything at all, but guess what? Someone gave their life to Christ. Not because of how great a painting was, not because of how good my words were, but because God's spirit is moving when we walk in faith. And so I started to think about what if we used art to reach people with the gospel? What if we did that? But I still allowed the fear of failure to creep into my heart. Where I kept putting it off, I was like, listen, there's no way to live, first of all, it's hard to make a living as an artist. It's harder to make a living as a Christian evangelist, preacher, artist, all right? It's a very niche category, all right? And so I kept putting off. I was like, you know, I'm going to go to college. I'll become a teacher, and I'll just kind of do this during the summers maybe on the side. So I, I go to Bible college, 
I'm in my second semester, and I remember I took this hike up onto the top of a mountain, and I just felt kind of like, all right, I'm doing something good here, but I feel like God is something more. And God led me to the book of Jeremiah, where it says, the summer is over, the harvest is ended, and we are not saved. The people of Israel saying, we, we, the time has passed for us to be redeemed. And I kept thinking, what if this upcoming summer is the last summer I have to tell people about God? What would I do? And I was like, I would tell every single person I knew about Jesus, about the God that saved me and loved me and gave me new life. And so I had this idea. I was like, what if I spent the entire summer of 2014 just doing art and telling people about Jesus? So I dropped out of college because that's the right thing to do, right? And I was like, all right, I'm going to travel the East Coast from Key West, Florida up to Maine, and I'll just stop at every boardwalk and street corner. I'll just get up there, and I'll paint, and I'll tell people about Jesus. And so that's why I, I did. I dropped out of college, and I was like, great, I'm going to go out to Key West, Florida. I don't have a car. Someone donated a car in faith. I was like, great, I don't have a driver's license. It's a bad way to start a road trip, right? So I don't have a license. Got my license. Got Someone gave us this car, all right? I fill it up with all the fruit snacks I could find because I didn't know how to, you know, feed myself. And I remember it's the day that I'm leaving and I have like $200 to my name. I'm about to go live off those $200 for three months out of my car. And I was like, God, this is about to fail hard. But I had that moment where I realized it doesn't matter if I fail, if I'm faithful. It doesn't matter if I fail, if I'm faithful. So I said, God, I'm going to do this. It's the morning that I'm leaving, the pastor of our church, he's like, hey, Tucker, I wanted to see if you were actually leaving on this trip. I see you're all packed up. You're leaving. I'd like to bring you up on stage, and I'd like to tell people about what you're doing. And I said, awesome. That sounds great. He pulls me up on stage. I tell everyone about this trip that I'm taking. And my pastor, he turns to everyone. This is a weird statement. He says, I want everyone to go out into the lobby, and I want you to put cash in his pockets. And I was like, how about a basket? He said, cash in his pocket. So... I go out after service, and I'm standing there, and I have, like, these 90-year-old women coming up behind me just sticking their hands into, like, my, like, not my front pockets, my back pockets, and just sticking some, like, $2 bills in there, okay? And it was very weird, and it seemed like a different kind of lifestyle. So that's happening, all right? And finally, I, I'm, I'm leaving on this trip, and people donated $15,000 that morning that allowed me, when it was 200 million degrees in Florida, and there was literally no hotel I ha could find a place to sleep because someone donated money. And I spent that entire summer, summer living out of my car doing street art and telling people about Jesus. And I can't tell you that there were thousands of people that got saved or millions, but I can tell you this one story. I was in, uh, it was uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm in this park I'm painting a picture of a guy that's missing. Uh, it's like puzzle pieces out of his face. It's all about how all of us are looking for God, that he is the missing puzzle piece in our lives. I'm doing this drawing, when all of a sudden I get a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and the most terrifying, huge, scarred, homeless man I've ever seen in my life is standing behind me. And he looks at me and says, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm painting, drawing. He's like, I saw you from across the street. And I, I don't really know what you're doing, but I saw that there's a portion of man who's missing, missing pieces out of his face or something. And I know that there's pieces missing in me, and I don't know what fills that inside of me. I don't know if that's God or religion or whatever, but I know that you have the answer. So what's the answer? I was like, I wasn't ready. Like, just wasn't prepared, and I told him about the Lord. And the man accepted Christ on that spot. And maybe that whole trip was about that one man, or maybe it was just about God calling me to be faithful. I got back from that trip. I thought the summer was going to end, and I was just going to, like, die or something. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. The trip ended. The summer ended. And life kept going. 
And a few years later, after I had kind of just wandered a bit, God finally brought me back to this point. Tucker, are you going to be faithful or are you going to live in fear? Because I thought I had kind of finished my quest, as it were. And God said, no, I have more. And so in uh, 2017, we launched something called Painting Freedom, an arts ministry where we just use art to tell people about Jesus. And it started with a ragtag group of young adults and teenagers, and we just started telling people, hey, we're going to come to your church, we're going to play music, we're going to paint, and we're going to talk about Jesus. People started opening doors for us to do that. It wasn't long before we were invited onto some of the biggest stages in the United States to come and share the gospel. And over the past few years of doing this full-time as a full-time ministry, we've gotten to see thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to Christ and have their lives transformed by the beauty of the gospel. Not because the artwork is that incredible, not because the speaking is that engaging, but because, like I said before, the Spirit of God moves when we start living in faith rather than fear. When we start defining our value by our Savior, not by our success. Because if you define your value by your success, when you fail, you're going to say, my value just dropped, and you won't try again. But when you say, Jesus has set my value in stone, that he carved my value in stone with the nails that went through his wrists and feet, when we live in that truth, guess what? We can be bold men who walk in faith rather than fear. We can be bold men who are willing to take the risk and live in the truth of the gospel. Because what did Jesus say? He said, you have been bought with a price. Jesus gave everything for you and for me. He said, you are worth everything. He looked at us, the broken pocket watch, and he said, I would give everything for you. When we really encounter the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ and live in it, he flips everything on its head. The way that we used to live, living in fear, he gives us a new life, a life of faith, a life of hope. But you have to live with a true relationship with Jesus. And so I want to do this painting for you now. That's just an illustration of everything that I've shared with you, everything that I've talked about. Because my hope is that even if you forget the words that I've said, you won't forget this picture. You won't forget the truth of this morning. Because if we have a, a group of men like this that live in faith and hope rather than fear, we will see not just family transformation, not just community transformation, but we will see citywide transformation, nationwide transformation. And that's what I want to see. So as the music is playing, as the paint is flying, I encourage you just to let this soak in. Reflect on what you've heard. Reflect on something maybe that challenged you. But don't forget the truth that when we live in right relationship with God, believing his truth rather than the lies that we've heard, he flips everything on its head and replaces fear with hope. So you can hit that track.
Your fire fall, cast out all my fear. Let your fire fall, he loves all I fear. Let your fire fall, cast out all my fear. Let your fire fall, he loves all I fear. Let your fire fall, cast out. painting that I shared with you, the one that epically failed on the boardwalk, this is what it was supposed to be. And I remember I finished it and it didn't look like what I intended because I'd never practiced doing it upside down in this whole thing. And the reason that I did it upside down was not to be like, ooh, it's really cool, you can paint. No, it's because it's truth. You see, when you truly experience the glory of God in your life and his redemption in your life and you walk in that hope, it transforms and flips everything on its head. He is the God that can take your fear and turn it into hope and faith. He is the God that takes broken men and women. He says, I'm gonna use them to change the world. He is the God that can transform and redeem all things. And so my encouragement, I pray that you were encouraged this morning. I pray that you were challenged this morning. My prayer is that each and every single one of us would leave today stronger in our faith, trusting that he is the one that defines our value and not our success. That would be men that walk in faith rather than fear. That we would walk in hope rather than anxiety. 
May we be men filled with the hope of Jesus Christ. And may we see that transformation leak out from our lives into our families, our marriages, our children, our communities, our jobs, our cities, and this nation, this world. Because that's what God has called us to do. Men of faith. Let's pray real quick as we close. Lord, we want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for the space. Thank you for the team that put this together. God, I pray that we would be like Moses and Jeremiah, that we would push past the fear that to walk in faith and hope that we would live in true relationship with you, God, trusting in the redemption and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, we worship you. Thank you for all these things. In your son's name, amen. Thank you so much, guys. Amen.